Julie Ryan, noted psychic and medical intuitive, is ready to answer your personal questions, even those you never knew you could ask. For more than 25 years, as she developed and refined her intuitive skills, Julie used her knowledge as a successful inventor and businesswoman to help others. Now, she wants to help you to grow, heal, and get the answers you've been longing to hear. Do you have a question for someone who's transitioned? Do you have a medical issue? What about your pet's health or behavior? Perhaps you have a loved one who's close to death and you'd like to know what's happening. Are you on the path to fulfill your life's purpose? No matter where you are in the world, take a journey to the other side and ask Julie Ryan. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Ask Julie Ryan Show. I'm Julie, your host, and I'm so delighted you could be with us this evening. My intention in doing this show is to provide information, insight, and comfort to people all around the world to help answer life's unanswerable questions. And I have such a treat for you this week. One of my dearest friends, Katie Coots. Yay, Katie's here. Hi, Katie. Hi, Julie. Hi, girl. Katie, you guys, is just, she's just one of those people that that you meet and you know you're going to be lifelong friends when you meet her. And that's what happened with us. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But let me let me read the whole nine yards about Katie because, you know, I can't remember all of this, Katie. <laughs> Katie Coons is an award-winning freelance writer, author, and editor whose focus includes spirituality, travel, and health, including complementary and mind-body medicine kind of health. For the past six years, Katie's been the editor of Unity Magazine. So all of you that don't have a subscription yet, go get one to Unity Magazine. It's worth it. As a, free, as a freelance editor, book, book doctor, and ghostwriter, Katie has worked with numerous authors, including New York Times bestselling authors, Dr. Christian Northrup, Dr. Joe Dispenza, and Anita Morjani, and other someday New York Times bestsellers like me. (laughs) I knew you'd love that. (laughs) Katie has interviewed and written articles about new thought luminaries such as Eckhart Tolle, Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra, Marianne Williamson, Don Miguel Ruiz. Did I say that right? Mm -hmm. Carolyn Mace, and many others. As you can see, my dear friend, Katie Kunz, is an exceptional woman, exceptional, exceptional woman, and I'm delighted she agreed to join us on the Ask Julie Ryan Show. Welcome, Katie. I'm so thrilled to have you. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. You're usually on the other side of the interview. You're usually the one doing the interview instead of being interviewed. And how this all came about, everybody, was I was talking to Katie. Was it last Saturday? I guess I was on my morning walk and I was, we were just chatting about her latest project and just life in general. And I said, Katie, you have been with so many amazing people. You've worked with so many amazing people. You've interviewed so many amazing people. I probably need to just have you on my show because I can't even imagine, you know, all the wisdom that you've garnered from all of these people with whom you've worked over the years. So do you ever pinch yourself when you think of all these these people who have affected really the globe um, with their their thoughts and their teachings and all of that. Have you ever thought about my gosh? Oh, yeah. I, I pinch myself all, all the time. I I'm doing just exactly what I wanted to do. And then I get to talk to the most interesting people 
And some of them are, you know, have been my own teachers through the years. Some of them are people that I've that I've worked with and uh, and and revered, you know, when I interview people for the magazine. And just in general, I just feel really, really blessed. The, the amount of uh, wisdom that's been imparted to me by these people is uh, is just incredible. And they're and they're they're all really uh, valuable right now, right? To what's going on. Oh so. yeah, yeah. No kidding. Yeah, with it's almost like it's been a, a lead up or a precursor to to what's going on now in our world with the COVID pandemic and with all the, especially here in the U.S., the riots and the unrest and the demonstrations and you know and all of that. And it, I, I think it's remarkable how you've been so instrumental in get in being able to distribute this information and it's been so helpful to people, especially at a time like this when people are looking for some guidance, perhaps, perhaps in ways that they normally wouldn't be looking. I think people have been interested in this kind of stuff for a long time. And, uh, and they, not everybody knows where to look. Not everybody knows who to trust because there's also a lot of really bad information out there. I mean, you and I have talked about that too. So, um, so I'm really happy to be able to, to do what I do in a good way, hopefully in a way that, that opens the door for people who want to learn more and don't necessarily know where to start. Right. And, and who are coming from organized religions, perhaps, and they're saying, okay, I, I think there's more to the equation than this. And, and where do I go find it? And certainly the internet has facilitated a lot of that with the information going around. And to your point, let's be able to discern what's legit and what's not. And, and the way that I tell people how to discern, you know, how to figure out what, what's real and what's not is how does it feel? Mm-hmm. If you feel like, Oh, I, I just don't know that this makes sense. Or you feel bad, stay away from it. Cause our gut always knows you know, if this feels good, I feel calm, this feels like it's coming from a loving place, and then you go forward is what I believe. Do you have a, a feeling about that one way or another? Oh, yeah. That's, your gut is a great barometer, you know, and I always tell clients, because I, you know, I do freelance editing, and I always tell them that, um, that whatever they're doing when they're talking, when they're writing something or when they're talking to people who are giving them opinions about what they should be writing about or what their writing is or when they're talking to their editors or publishers, it all has to ring true. I mean, that doesn't mean that we're all calm and serene all the time. You might be nervous or scared or I don't know, whatever. But if it, if it doesn't feel right, then, then get out of that situation or speak up or change it because, right. you know, Intuition is is something that's available to all of us, even if we don't feel that we are intuitive, we still have some amount of intuition. Oh, everybody does. And that's our spirit saying, hey, you need to look at this from a different perspective or something's not right here. So pay yeah. attention. I think all of us have had situations where we had a thought about how to handle a situation or something to do, and we didn't follow it. And then we, regroup, we regretted it after we didn't follow it. Yeah, absolutely. When you agree. So tell us about your childhood. Tell us about how did you get to the point where you thought you wanted to be a journalist? I mean, and a writer. What what leads a person to get there where they 
they are doing it at the level where you are, especially in the niche that you're in. And and I know you've been in a bunch of different areas of journalism. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I, I'm interested in finding out how does how does a young girl get to be this journalist person that works with all these famous people? Well, when I was little, um, I always wanted to be a writer from day one. But when I was little, that meant stories. You know, yeah. because I, I wasn't thinking journalist when I was four. Right. Um, but um, but I did actually I I wasn't so much into dolls, but I was very into stuffed animals. And I wrote a news a newspaper for my stuffed animals. How old were you at this point? Oh, I was probably, I don't know, seven, eight. It was the Katieville Gazette. <laughs> I love that. So I guess I got into journalism, but really I was thinking about stories. Um, and, uh, and and we might talk about the banana police later, but I did actually finally publish a story. But I wanted to write and I really liked writing and I really liked that the, that form of expression. Um, I felt, and, and you talk about having this, you know, feeling uh, whenever I was writing and, and, uh, and, and I was connecting with what I wanted to say, even if it was not necessarily, you know, very profound, um, I always had this wonderful feeling inside. It was like, um, <laughs> it's sort of like, I don't play tennis. I'm, I'm, I'm not a good tennis player, but I did take lessons when I was a kid. And I remember the instructor said, he talked about the sweet spot in the center of the racket. And, uh, and, and I learned that when you hit the tennis ball right in the sweet spot, you know, there's this really satisfying, that is not the same as hitting it kind of close. And so, you know, I would get in the flow and I would, I would be in that, I would feel that sweet spot. And, uh, and, you know, that's addictive. Being in the flow is addictive. So I loved it and I really wanted to do it and I kept doing it. And, and I kind of took a journalism turn. My father said, oh, you should write in junior high because back then we called it junior high, not middle school. Um, My dad said, oh, you should write for the student paper. Oh, I can't do that. But of course I did. (laughs) And, uh, and, and then I really enjoyed sharing ideas, you know, and, and doing research and interviewing people. And, uh, and that was a lot of it, too. And back then, we didn't have the Internet yet. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> so for those of, those of us that are listening, not us, because I'm older than you are, I think. But for, for people who are listening to this, how did you do research back then before the Internet? I think it's kind of a novel concept. To people and they just don't even think about it. I was talking to somebody recently and they said their son who's in high school picked up a regular phone and heard the dial tone. And he said, mom, this phone doesn't work. I think they were, he was at his grandmother's house. And he said, mom, this phone doesn't work. And she said, well, what do you mean? And he goes, well, there's this weird noise on the phone. And she said, well, honey, that's the dial tone. He goes, well, what's a dial tone? I mean, this child had been raised on cell phones that there isn't a dial tone. Yeah, I know. So, it was a whole how, did, how did you do research on things when you were in high school working for the paper? Well, certainly interviewing people, you know, and, and that was back before there, there were tape recorders, but, you know, it was reel to reel. So it wasn't like you walked around with a reel to reel tape recorder. But um, but, you know, I would take notes and I would talk to people. And depending on what the subject was. Um, I also would read books and, and I had these uh, these four by six index cards and, and I still have upstairs in my office because I put so much into it. I can't throw it away. And it just shows like how, how crazy I was. I have all these index cards where I would take notes from books, you know, and, and bookmark them and have all that kind of information. Cause I read a lot of books. That's the other thing. You know, if you're going to be a writer, you should be a good reader too. And I was, so 
volumes and volumes of notes. <laughs> well, and I know you're an only child, but tell us, did that play into you being a good reader or did your parents encourage you to read? How did that come about? Would it just come in and it was natural? Well, yeah, I don't know if it had too much to do with being an only child, but my mother was an exceptional reader. She could read really fast and retain it. I could not read as fast as she did, um, but she was just a scholar like that. And she would just read and read and read. And in the summer, uh, she always wanted to be a librarian. That was her thing. So, um, but for different reasons, it didn't work out that way. But she would take me to the library in the summer, even when I was a little girl. And we would get just stacks of books and we would go home. She, you know, have her stack and I'd have my stack and I would just read all day. And, and I remember at one point in the summer, my goal was to finish a book, read a book and start a book every day. Wow. And uh, yeah. And, and I, I loved it. It was like, you know, it was, it was, if it was fiction, it was escape into a different world. If it was nonfiction, it was learning about a different subject. And, uh, and so I did that just all the time. And I would always read at night. And there were a couple of times we loved Dr. Doolittle. Oh, so yeah. we both read Dr. Doolittle and which, you know, there are a million Dr. Doolittle books. So we read them all. And of course she read them much faster than I did because she could read faster and she was an adult and she, you know, was home during the day I was at school. So I would try to catch up at night with a flashlight and, you know, she'd come back and say, put the light out, go to bed. I did. Have you seen the new Dr. Doolittle movie? I haven't, but I want to. It's cute. It's cute. Really cute. And I love Dr. Doolittle, the original one with, um, oh, the guy, you know, Rex Harrison, wasn't it? Rex Harrison. Yeah. I was going to say the guy that played Henry Higgins in, <laughs> in uh, my, in um, my brain. What oh, was my, the fair lady. my fair lady. Yeah. I was going to say my fair lady. So how was it growing up as an only child? I mean, I hear you saying you read all the time as an only child. Were you lonely? Did you feel lonely or was it no. just, you didn't feel lonely because you had all these adventures in these books that yeah. you were. And I made adventures with my stuffed animals and I would write stories and, and we had a big backyard. So I would climb trees and, and all that kind of stuff. And I had friends over and I would go to friends' houses. But, so um, yeah, I never felt, never felt lonely. And because I was such a good reader, if I was alone, if it was like bad weather or whatever, nobody was uh-huh. around, I could always escape into a book. Yeah. I used to ask my son, because he's an only child, I asked him one time, I said, are you um, sorry that you don't have siblings? And he said, no, why would I be sorry? And I said, well, I worry about when when you're old and we're dead and gone and you're by yourself. He said, I'm not going to be by myself. I have lots of friends. I have Mallory, his wife. She has family. And he said, he said, no, I like being the center of attention. It was great. So <laughs> hopefully you felt the same way. It made me feel better as his mom. Yeah, and then as an adult, you get to pick your family. That's right. So junior high, you were on the paper. Did you do the same thing in high school? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I decided I I wanted to go into journalism. Uh And and so I did. And I was also really interested in anthropology, too. Um, I had a teacher in high school who was an anthropologist and an archaeologist, and he would do digs in New Jersey. I grew up in Philadelphia, outside of Philadelphia, and he did these digs in New Jersey. So we would go, a couple of students would go and maybe a grad student or two with him on the, on the weekends and do this. And it was pretty fascinating. So I ended up majoring, I actually got two degrees, one in journalism and one in anthropology. And at the time, 
Um, I thought that would be like my dream job would be for, you know, to write for National Geographic or something like that. Now I found out that the people that write those stories, you know, they have PhDs. They're not oh. people like me, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. And where'd you go to school? Penn State. And are they known for their journalism school? Yeah, they do have an accredited school in journalism. That's what I thought. Yeah. I've been to football games there <laughs> in Happy Valley. It was really fun. And those guys know how to party before the football games. Yes. They have some serious tailgaters at Penn State. Because yes. I went to the Ohio State University, and they have serious tailgaters there. And <laughs> now I'm an Alabama fan because I live in Birmingham and, you know, do the Alabama thing. And that's fun, too. But I think college football is one of the most fun things to do in the fall for me anyways, and my family. So we do that. So you got out of school and then what happened at that point? Were there, were you thinking about going to work for a newspaper? Did they come recruit on campus? How did, where did, where did your career start once you got out of school? I am. And I'm not really sure why I decided this, but, but I had decided that I really was interested in magazines as opposed to newspapers. And I was willing to take a job on a newspaper because, you know, there are more openings. Mm-hmm. And I certainly was trained for that. Um, but magazines were were my real love. And and I think it's because uh, in, in writing, it wasn't so much news I was into, although I could do it and I have done all kinds of news writing. But I really liked researching a subject and, and telling a story and bringing that information forward. So feature stories were always more interesting to me than just straight news. So, um, so I really wanted magazines and I was really lucky because when I was a junior at Penn State, there was a program, there's an organization called ASME, the American Society of Magazine Editors, and they have an internship program for rising seniors every summer. And they pick the best and the brightest from around the country who are going to accredited journalism schools and it's nationally competitive. And it's, I think there were, I want to say there were 50 of us when I was there. Um, and we all went and we lived in the, in Weinstein Hall at NYU, right on Washington Square Park. And, uh, and we all had internships with different magazines. Mine was with a McGraw-Hill magazine called Architectural Record, which is like, I knew nothing about architecture, but, um, it was really good experience. And then they had these lunches for us on Friday and big wigs from, you know, ASME from, you know, the, the editor in chief of Good Housekeeping would come and talk to us. So, so I had a little bit of experience doing that. And I also, the summer before that, I was an intern at Philadelphia Magazine. And, uh, and a guy named Maury Levy was the um, executive editor. And so I, I worked with him and he was such a blast. He was such a great mentor to me. I just, I loved Maury. I'm still in touch with Maury. Aww. So I had all this magazine experience. But, you know, when you graduate from college, even if you have a ton of clips, and I had been a stringer for the New York Times, I mean, I had done a lot of things. What does that mean? What's a stringer uh, for the New York like Times? Like they would tell me when they were looking for information on a story and, and I would do some research and it might just be a quote that would be included in another story. Um, or, you know, I would write actual stories about things that, that would happen on campus, but I wasn't on the staff. You know, it was a, it was a freelance thing. Okay. So, um, but you know, that doesn't mean that you can just walk into a job. And, uh, and so I, I didn't want to move to New York. So I went to Boston I really liked Boston. And, uh, and I was there for, oh, I guess about six months, nine months, I guess. And then Maury had then by that time moved to New York City uh, to get a job working for Playboy Fashion Magazine. And he's like, you got a job, kid. So I went to New York and I was there for about eight years. 
And I moved, you know, when that magazine folded, I worked for a couple other magazines. But before I say anything more, Playboy Fashion was about men putting clothes on, not women taking them off. I was going to say, I knew I knew Playboy was in your history there sometime. And I was thinking, okay, how I wanted you to tell us about that. What was Playboy Fashion? I don't even remember that. Yeah, it was kind of fun. It was a quarterly magazine. Okay. And Playboy magazine itself is in Chicago, but Playboy fashion was in New York because the okay. fashion industry is in New York. Yeah. We also did the Playboy Guide to Men's Entertainment, which was all about, you know, that was back when VCRs were very new. <laughs> so it's all about, you know, that kind of electronic equipment and stuff like that. So, and, and, and I love that. And, uh, and I got to work with some amazing people and, uh, and I was a fact checker. So when people say like, well, you know, what did you do? What kind of stuff would you do? I had to check everything. The fact checkers at Playboy in Chicago were legendary. They're just legendary. And so I, I learned from some of them and, and felt like I had to uphold their standards. And my favorite thing was I had to check how many shoes Raquel Welsh had in her closet. Oh, what was the number at the time? I don't remember, but I couldn't actually go in her closet and count them. But I spoke to someone who actually had been in her closet and could, could you know, say, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> wow, that's wild. And I know you also wrote, you, you mentioned the New York Times. I know the Washington Post. Tell us some of the other uh, magazines and newspapers that you've written, written articles well, for. I um. I also worked at the Ladies Home Journal for a while as a full-time freelancer, uh, as an editorial assistant level full-time freelancer um, and for a working woman. And uh, and then I worked at Success Magazine, which was a men's business magazine, which I, I think may still exist, um, and McCall's Magazine. I was the travel and features editor at McCall's Magazine. That that was the last staff job I had before I went fully freelance. But I, I and I've I've written for a lot of the women's magazines. I've written for parenting magazines, Parents and Parenting, um, Brides and Modern Bride, um, and and a ton of travel magazines because I got in I got into really into doing travel writing um, as an adult. So I wrote for a bunch of travel magazines too. I've written for National Geographic Traveler and Travel and Leisure and you know a bunch of other travel magazines. How does how did it work back then? Of course, I'm thinking The Devil Wears Prada, the movie, <laughs> you know, which is written on Anna Wintour, supposedly. It's based on her, and she um, is, is really tough, apparently, to work for and all that. But how, did, how does it work to you? And back then, before we had the internet, did somebody call you and say, hey, Katie, we want you to write an article about how plaid is going to influence the fall fashion industry. And then you would go research plaid or how does that work? What do you, how do you do that? Well, it, it works very similarly to how it works now in that there are two ways. If you're a known freelancer and you've done stuff for them and they know you and they know what your specialty is, then they'll call you and say, Hey, would you research plaid? But the other way is to write a query letter. So if you have an idea for a story, you oh. develop a pitch and back then it was the U.S. mail and you would sit down in front of your trusty typewriter and you would type it out <laughs> and put it in an envelope and a stamp on it and take it to the post office. Oh, my gosh. And then they would typeset it at the magazine and then it would be printed. Well, no, you would, it would just be a pitch for the story. You wouldn't oh, actually write the whole story because then the editor would have some guidance about, OK, but do it like this and interview this person and don't go so much there, whatever. And they tell you how long they wanted it 
um, you know, if there was a particular uh, point of view or something they wanted you to cover. And then you would go research it and do it. And then again, type it up, <laughs> put, put it in a manila envelope because it was thicker and mail it off. And, and, and then you would you research all- it. Would you research at a local library or maybe a university library? Or how did you research this kind of stuff? Well, if I had to go to a library, yeah. Um, but otherwise, I was on the phone all the time. And okay. that was back before when long distance calls cost something. Right. So, you know, I, I think credit my, card calls, credit card yes, calls, you had a yes. number <laughs> that the phone company gave you and then you, you um, dial the number usually from a phone booth. I was a sales rep, so I'm in the phone booth and I dial the number and then you'd have to dial in the number for your credit card. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, gosh, that <laughs> seems like it was, you know, generations ago when it was, but eons ago, my goodness. Yeah. Okay, so you would do that, and then they would what they would let you know whether they were going to publish your article or not. Yeah, they would always have questions or want you to redo something, or you know, or ask you to make it longer or shorter, or add a sidebar or something. <clears throat> Excuse me, and then you would do that, mail that in again. Yeah, and then eventually, you know, all this was done through email, but it was uh, it was a long time in coming. In fact, when I was at Penn State, the the student paper there actually changed over from typewriters and, and, uh, and, and copy paper um, to what was called then VDTs, video display terminals. So that, that, that ages me right there. I got to see the turnover. <laughs> oh and when God. I was at McCall's, um, I had a typewriter and there was one computer. This is McCall's magazine. Like, and I don't know, you know, it doesn't exist anymore. People may not know what it is, but it was a, it was a very, very, very large women's magazine. You know, Absolutely. it's just as big as Ladies Home Journal or, you know, Women's Day, Family Circle, Better Homes and Gardens. They were all called the Seven Sisters. So it was a very big magazine in New York City. One computer for the entire magazine staff and the editorial assistants or assistant editors would have to take turns using the computer. Have you ever heard of Cozy Earth bedding? It's your ultimate luxury escape. Cozy Earth sheets are temperature regulating and incredibly soft, and they even have a 10-year warranty. They're made from organic bamboo and silk, are hypoallergenic, and even antimicrobial. Cozy Earth sheets are so amazing, they've been on Oprah's favorite things list for five years in a row, and I have them on my bed right now. So if you're ready to elevate your sleep, Cozy Earth has a special offer for just for my listeners. Go to CozyEarth.com and use the code AskJulie for a 35% discount. That's C-O-Z-Y-Earth.com and use code AskJulie for a 35% discount. Upgrade your sleep with Cozy Earth bedding. I love them and so will you. I remember when I got my first fax machine. And I was living in Los Angeles and I spent so much money on FedEx and I had to get the packages to FedEx by 5 p.m. Pacific so that it could get to Memphis and then be distributed to where it was ever, wherever it was going in the next day. And I remembered I got a fax machine and we had this thermal paper and it was a roll. And I remember watching it come out of the fax machine and thinking, oh my God, this is magical. This is amazing. And, and it was just life-changing. 
to have that fax machine, let alone the computers. So, yeah, God, we're dating ourselves here, gay girl. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so then how did you transition into being a book editor? How did that work? Well, um, at that time, I was in New York City, and uh, I was very, very interested in doing um, holistic health and complementary medicine. And I was, I was really interested in spirituality, but that was very fringy back then. Sure. Um, and about as close as any mainstream editor would come to that would be aromatherapy. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I felt, uh, as, as I said, even at the beginning of this interview, you know, I felt really strongly that, that people all over America were interested in these topics, but they didn't want to necessarily, you know, pick up some, you know, they didn't want to pick up the national Enquirer to read about extraterrestrials necessarily. Right. Like they wanted, they wanted something that they could really trust, but I couldn't, get a lot of, of editors to go very far beyond just like complementary medicine. And I was really into altered states of consciousness and all kinds of things uh, that now are much more mainstream, um, if not totally mainstream, much more. So I kept trying and I kept trying and I kept trying. And uh, and then eventually I thought, oh, you know, I, I, I'm just going to do it. I, I'm just going to write for a New Age Journal, which I really, it wasn't that I didn't like the magazine. It was just that I really wanted to bring it to the mainstream. I, you know, I, I didn't want to be singing to the choir. But I did that. And uh, I had a fantastic editor. And I did several stories that I thought were, were really good. And then all of a sudden, I get this call from Christian Northrup's office. Diane Grover called me. I had interviewed Dr. Northrup for a story, I think, on breastfeeding. It, it wasn't even on necessarily holistic health. And um, I think I had interviewed her twice. And for some reason, they had kept my name. And uh, Dr. Northrup was then working on her third book, which was called Mother Daughter Wisdom. And uh, she needed somebody to help her with the resource guide. She has these fantastic resource guides at the end of the book. And, uh, and so I signed on to do that. And then she wanted some help just, you know, fact checking the rest of the book and doing a little bit of editing. And I loved her. I loved working with her. I had so much respect for her. She's such a pioneer, such an amazing human being. And, uh, and, at that time, she was about, uh, or, or after Mother Daughter Wisdom came out, then she moved to Hay House as a publisher. So she started writing for Hay House, and she needed somebody to, to work with. And so we kept working together. And then Hay House, because I did a good job, would refer me to other editor or other uh, authors that they have there. And so that's how I got to, to work with some other authors there, um, you know, Joe Dispenza and Anita Morjani and Mona Lisa Schultz and, and, and some other names too. So uh, that was fantastic. And I love that environment. And I, and I felt like I really, um, I, I had finally found my niche. I wasn't, uh, you know, <laughs> I wasn't trying to, uh, I, I wasn't necessarily trying to convince New York editors to write about more than aromatherapy. I, I, I went where, where I felt welcome. And, uh, and then, you know, things kind of turn around again. So I, uh, I did that for a long time and, and really enjoyed it and really loved the, I wasn't reporting and interviewing anymore, but I was, I was taking things and, and shaping them and, and really kind of being a midwife. Uh, you know, helping the, the birthing mother give birth to this amazing baby, which was a book. Um, often a, a best-selling book. So, um, so I got a lot of, uh, just a lot of um, satisfaction out of that. And, and, and I hit that sweet spot we were talking about, you know, I was working with people that, uh, that who really appreciated me and, and, and treated me well. And, and I wasn't trying to convince people who thought I was crazy. 
Uh, and then out of the blue, I get a call from my friend, Jill Angelo, who had done some consulting work for Unity. And, uh, and, and, and I'll have to tell you how I got into Unity, but I, had, I was a Unity student at the time, still am. And she said, oh, they've, uh, they have lost their editor, their editor left, and they're looking for a new editor. Can, you know, can I give them your name? And at first I said, eh, yeah, I, I don't need a job. I got a job. I'm very happy with what I do. And she's like, oh, just talk to them. And I'm like, well, I mean, I can, but I, you know, she's like, just talk to them. So it was one of those things, Julie, where it, it was the perfect thing. It brought me back to magazines. Um, and when I talked to, uh, to the vice president of communications and he described to me what they were looking for, he couldn't have described me in terms of background and personality and demeanor and how I work more perfectly than had he said, five, two, light brown hair, blue eyes, <laughs> there's a scar in your left knee. <laughs> It was kind of perfect. Um, and then some like really interesting signs happened the first time that I went to campus and, uh, and I just loved it. And I love the people. Like what? Like what? What were the signs? Well, unity. Okay. Is, uh, is a, is a metaphysical based religion. It started out I mean, it, it was, it was founded in the 1800s and it was, it was uh, founded as a, as a Christian religion, but, but the Christians don't consider it Christian because it's, totally not like a regular, a regular Christian religion. So there's no cross, but one of the symbols is a dove or, mm-hmm. and, and wings. So the first time I went, I was inside this building all day, meeting a ton of people. And then some of us went out to dinner that evening and we walk into the parking lot and I happened to look up in the sky and here's this incredible cloud formation that looks just like a dove. And I, <laughs> I looked up and I said, I said, yes. <laughs> said yes um and then there was the fire story <laughs> what's that, and that story? so um so the week that I was there the first week that I was there um the on Thursday they had a burning bowl ceremony and unity normally has burning bowl ceremonies at the beginning of the year or the end of the year so you you write things that you want to release and it's a special kind of ceremony and they have a big fire and you kind of toss it into the fire and you know as a group you kind of release that energy, you know, you know, you release what you don't want anymore or, or, and and there are different ways to approach it too. The other thing is to put down, you know, what you want and the prayers take it to heaven, even though we all know heaven is right here, but anyway, (laughs) it's just, it's symbolic. It's a metaphor. So it was really weird. I was there in October and they were having it. And, uh, and, and I love fire and I work with fire. I do fire ceremonies myself every month. So, and, and I had for years and years when this happened. So I thought, okay, how cool is that? That there's a fire ceremony the first week that I'm there. So of course I went and, uh, and they, uh, what they do is they had distributed these cards and, and asked people to email them in or mail them in. And so from all over the world, People had these cards that they wrote things that they that they were asking for that they wanted to release, and then they brought them out in boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes, and you know dumped them into this sort of giant walk kind of thing that they had out in in the middle of the labyrinth they have there in the parking lot, or what used to be a parking lot, and um, and so you know people were putting them in there and we were singing and I think there was some drumming and you know people talked and all this kind of stuff and uh, and I loved it and that was at the end of the week and then I went home. So probably two years after that, at least two years after that, maybe even three, I don't remember, but years after that, 
I was on Facebook and I was looking at the unit. Unity has a Facebook page and then there's a Unity Village Facebook page because there were events at Unity Village. And so they have a Unity Village page that talks about what the village is like and pretty pictures of it. It's a fantastic, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. It's a, it's a hundred years old now. It has the most amazing Mediterranean um, architecture and, and these incredible rose gardens and like the labyrinth and like wildlife and, oh, it's just amazing. Anyway, so I'd like to look at the pictures because they're just so pretty. So I was kind of scrolling and, and you know, sometimes how when you're online like that and you're scrolling, there's not a stopping point. You know, at the end of a magazine or end of a newspaper, there's a last page. But Facebook, there's no last page. Good point. (laughs) Yeah. It can be a time (laughs) suck, to say the least. Absolutely. And it's getting late and I need to go to bed. But I was really enjoying the picture. So I said, well, okay, I'll go back to the first time I was at the village. Just arbitrary pick that date. And they happened to have a picture of that fire ceremony. Oh. I could not believe that because they've never done it since. So they had this close-up of this big walk kind of thing, fire and like all these cards. And of course, you can't read the cards. And and I hadn't thought about that for so long. And then I thought as I'm looking at this, just being amazed that here's this picture of this fire ceremony the first time I was on campus. I thought, wouldn't it be crazy? There's no way to tell. But wouldn't it be really crazy if one of those cards was the one that I put in? That would be so crazy. So as I'm thinking of this, I'm, I'm looking, you know, at the picture on the screen. And there's this one card, like right in the middle, that's kind of sticking up. And I looked at it, and I zoom in, and I zoom in. And you couldn't read it. But first of all, you, you know what your handwriting looks like. Yeah. So it kind of looked like my handwriting. And then I had totally forgotten I had done this. But... I had written all this stuff about the, about the magazine and, and, you know, wanting to make it the you know best publication I could and put all the stuff into it. So it was all about what I was about to be doing there. And I wrote, thank you in giant capital letters at the bottom of this card. And that you could read on the card. Oh and when gosh. I saw that, I was like, Oh no, I can't believe it. That's actually my card. Oh, wow. I love that. I haven't heard that story from you. That's cool. Oh, I haven't told you that. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. Yeah. Well, you have a very developed spiritual side of you. And where'd that come from? Did you just come in with that? Were, were your parents real spiritual or how did that come about? I mean, you you are such a great combination of spirituality and work ethic and skill sets that you bring to the table to help spread this spiritual message. You know, so people think of messengers like Jesus or St. Francis or Buddha or the Dalai Lama or whomever, most of whom you've interviewed, maybe not Jesus, but I know you've, <laughs> you've interviewed what the, have you interviewed the Dalai Lama? Or I know you've tried a couple of I, times. I've tried. I've seen him in person and I've tried, but no, I haven't gotten quite that close. Well, you will someday, but you know, but you're a messenger too, because you're distilling all of this spiritual, uh, these teachings and stuff that, that these leaders are, are espousing in your you're, you're helping people understand it. So where'd that come from, Katie? Where's the spiritual side of you? Where'd that come from? Well, my parents were very middle of the road. You know, I grew up in suburban Philadelphia. My parents, you know, went to a Protestant church and, um, and, and, you know, they wanted me to go there too. That's where they were married and that's where their ashes are now. So I went to, um, at that time, the church had confirmation class. It was two year class. And the first one was 
I think in eighth grade. And I didn't really want to go because I, I, I was really interested in spirituality and I don't really know why or how, but I did not like the standard line that the church handed out. None of that made sense to me. There was no sweet spot. It was, there was no sweet spot there. Yeah. Um, and I just didn't understand, like, it didn't make sense to me that, and, and you know, I was a Protestant. I, 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 it wasn't that we thought everybody who, you know, wasn't Christian was going to hell, but there were people who thought that. And that didn't make any sense to me. And, and I didn't understand why you had to, um, you know, confess your sins to be saved. And I didn't, I mean, just all the different things about uh, that, that were very, very, um, where, the, where the church was very dominant. You know, they had power. They were telling you things. And, and you know, you better, you know, here's this list of sins and, and you, you can't do any of those things, you know, or you're not going to get in heaven or you won't be forgiven. And, and to me, that just didn't sound right to me. You better not be eating meat on Friday. I know, you know, so <laughs> I, I just, to me, God was a loving God and that it didn't make sense, but I, had, but I, I didn't know. I just didn't know because I didn't have exposure to anything else. And so um, I would read things and I actually started, I was, I was very interested when I was young in, in out of the box stuff, you know, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness monster, ghosts, UFOs, all that kind of stuff was, was interesting to me. And, uh, and then I, I think, I don't think I had read any channeled stuff by that point, but yeah, that was, that came later. But, um, but I was really interested in anything that was, that was out of the box. And I, and I think all of that was just priming me to understand that there's a box and you're either in the box or getting out of the box or out of the box. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so I really, you know, I would pray and I had these uh, interesting little ceremonies that I was hoping would, um, you know, bring me some sign or something. Um, but, but I, I was just kind of floundering because I couldn't quite find it, but I didn't, I didn't want to go to confirmation class. And then in the end, I did it just to make my parents feel better. But when I was finally confirmed in our church, what they did was you didn't have to speak separately, but the whole class that was being confirmed had to say the apostles creed together. And I mean, this is, this is serious stuff, right? You're in a church. Like you're not supposed to lie, right? Isn't that a sin? (laughs) So, so, and I wasn't going to get any help from my parents because they just thought I was weird. So I decided that I would only give voice to the parts of it that I believed. So any part of it that I thought was bullshit, sorry, that I thought was not right, I just didn't say it. And, um, and so that was kind of how I, how I did that. Right. Well, uh, with all these, these authors with whom you've worked, it's kind of a, it's got to be a work learn as you work kind of a thing. And, Mm -hmm. and obviously the more you work with them, the more you understand where they're coming from and all of that. And then you assimilate things in which I know it's had to have affected your life. I know when we worked together on angelic attendance, that was what a year before your dad died, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Probably not more than that, but probably, yeah, at least six months to a year. And and certainly we talk about the phases of transition and how our when anybody's dying they're surrounded by angels and deceased loved ones and all of that and and I know you and I were in touch a lot when your dad was dying and and I'm hoping that that helped you 
get through that whole situation. You told me when to go. My father, I live in Tennessee now, and and my dad was in the Philadelphia area. That's a long drive. (laughs) So it wasn't like I I couldn't just pop in on him. And, um, and so, yeah, I, when he was in hospice care, he had, he had, he died of pancreatic cancer. So when he was on hospice care, I would go up once a month and, uh, and I would get calls from people and there was all kinds of drama and different things going on. And, and you were very good at, at, at being able to say, okay, here's where he is. This is the situation. It's like, oh, you know, you, you, you really need to get, you need to get there now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's helpful. And I know certainly we've done lots of medical intuitive scans on you and your loved ones throughout the years as well, which usually ends up being helpful as well. So, Oh, very much so. Yeah. Having said all that, what are some of the things that are big takeaways for you with some of the authors with whom you've worked that have really affected your life to the point where you were saying, Oh my gosh, you know, I'm so it's, it's not a coincidence. I worked with this person because mm. this happened at that time, or I've implemented what this person I learned from working with this author. Is there anything that stands out oh, in particular? Oh, like, yeah, can you give us a couple of examples? Well, Dr. Northrup, you know, the whole idea of your body um, being this barometer that, that gives you women's wisdom, you know, women's bodies, women's wisdom, you can, you can understand what's going on in your life and, and in your heart and in your head by what's being reflected to you through your physical body. And she really helped me, uh, not personally, I mean, I'm sure she would if I sat down and talked to her about it, but her writings and what she would talk about and the the way she helped people connect the dots um, really helped me connect the dots in in a lot of things. Um, And that I, that I do constantly, I do it now all the time. And, And a lot of people do that now. It was very radical when she talked about it, not so radical now. Um, Joe Dispenza, that the whole reason I think I got the job at Unity was because I had worked with Joe Dispenza on two books. And the very first uh, book that I worked on, um, I had I had never gone to any of his uh, workshops before. And so I went to one in Texas. He brought me down to one he was giving in Texas just so I could see you know, who he was and what he did. And he did this. He's, he, he's a master of manifestation. So we did this manifestation uh, meditation. And of course, I was there to work on the book and get to know him and see what he did. So of course, I'm. he's talking about something you want to manifest. So of course, I'm putting the project in there. And then he did something that he does a lot. He's like, and then take it even further, take it even further, you know, put in something that you just don't even think could happen or like it's just the biggest thing. And like, he was really trying to get people to push themselves. Right. Um, and so I thought, well, okay. So I kind of threw in my whole career. You know, just... <laughs> And this was before I was at Unity Magazine. And that was the month that their editor quit. And the, and the funny thing was also that uh, this was when he was working with smaller audiences. Now it's just thousands and thousands. But this, this was in the sanctuary of a Unity Church in Texas. Mm-hmm. So I was doing this in the sanctuary of a Unity Church. That's it's not a coincidence. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I don't believe there are any coincidences in life ever. I think everything is all synchronized and it all unfolds perfectly. And when, when we all look back at our lives, we can say, yeah, I'm glad that happened because then this resulted and you can see how you're led on this path. And the key I think is to be able to understand, okay, I'm being led here. This has come up three or four times. I need to pay attention to this. This is, 
this is something. And like when you were offered that job as the magazine editor for Unity, you knew you got that sweet spot. You knew, okay, this feels right. I'm assuming, correct? Oh yeah, I I did. I did. And and I hadn't even thought about that meditation because, you know, the meditation wasn't specific trying to get that job or even a magazine job. But it was a couple of years later when I I forget how it kind of dawned on me. It was like, oh, wow. But um, yeah, absolutely. I knew, I, I knew it was, uh, it was, it was just the, it was the, it was the perfect storm. Things just came together in, in the perfect way. So when you combine your career and you combine your spiritual side of the equation and your mom's side and your wife's side and your, you know, partner side and all that kind of stuff. I know you won a big award not too oh, long ago. I did last and year. <laughs> I know. So tell everybody about that. And I'm particularly interested in how did it feel? Did you feel like you'd won an Academy Award kind of a thing? I mean, how did it feel to be recognized at that level by your peers after being in the industry for so long and all of the experiences that you've had and the skill sets and everything, did the, did it feel, was there a spiritual component to it when that happened, when you were at the award ceremony and all of that? Well, yeah, I mean, everything's spiritual, right? I mean, there's no really, there's no really dividing line between what's spiritual. Well, and if what people are cognizant of it, I think a lot of people aren't. But I, I was so bowled over. I had no idea um, that I would be, I mean, when I went to the ceremony, I knew, but before they announced who was going to be on the list, it was the, I was named to the Folio 100 last year in 2019. And Folio is like the Bible of the magazine industry. And of course, you know, they do more than just magazines now because we're evolving. But anyway, <laughs> the industry is evolving. So it's but like anyway, the Academy Award of the industry. It, it, it kind of is. They, they name 100 people every year and they, in different categories. And so some are like great big CEOs and some are creatives, you know, editors, people like me. And, and some are, you know, in the design capacity and some have to do with the, the Internet. So they have all these different categories because otherwise it would just be all the bigwigs, you know. And, uh, and I, I was amazed. I was just I did not see that coming. I really I really didn't think that I, I mean, I love what I did, but I didn't really think that, uh, that the industry would see it as outstanding. So that was really wonderful. And, uh, and, and we all got to go to this lovely luncheon and our art director at that time, Haley Pavey was also named as a rising star for, for younger folks. And I had nominated her and she had actually nominated me. So it was like, it was, that was kind of funny how that fell together. Everybody thought that was a scream. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. Uh, we went to the we went together to New York to do this, and it was wonderful. So we, um, yeah. you know, we got to stand up and say I don't know twenty seconds worth of a speech, something like right. that. Right. But and yeah, that, play, and the, and the orchestra played you off when you went over, like they do on the Academy Awards. <laughs> <laughs> played you off stage. Well, back to the book side of the equation. Back to the editor side of the equation. When you get an author's work. Some authors I know I've heard it's kind of like they're going to see their accountant at tax time. They bring a shoebox full of receipts and the accountant has to put it together. And I know some editors I've heard say it's kind of like that with some authors. You know, they'll they'll write a bunch of stuff out and then you got to make it into a book. What happens and what do you do? I know how much work this is for you. And 
Can you give everybody kind of a short synopsis of how that works and what happens? Sure, sure. So the first thing we do is, you know, we have to kind of identify what is this book? What's the central message and who's it for? Um, Who's it for is really important. And the answer isn't just, oh, anyone who's interested. Like, that's not the answer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because the, the best way to get anything that you're trying to get across in a book is to feel is for the reader to feel like they're having a personal conversation with you. Now, if you have a, if it's a biography, you have a compelling story about your life. That's one thing. But for most people who are trying to share ideas, you want to feel like you're sitting down having a cup of coffee with someone. You don't want to feel like you're in a lecture hall getting a lecture. You don't want to feel like you're watching the Discovery Channel on TV. You know, you want to feel like this is a person who you know and you trust and you're having a conversation. And um, that's what keeps it going. Otherwise, it's, you know, it's kind of boring. And, and if they if they trust you, it's it's a whole different, it's a sweet spot experience, right? Right, right. So it's really important to know who that is that you're that you're trying to go after. And um, and and then you know, we come up with a uh, if the author doesn't already have it, we come up with a uh, with an outline. And an outline is just a guide. It doesn't mean that it has to go this way. You know, stuff gets added, stuff gets taken out, but you have to have a roadmap to know where you're going. And then I talk to them a lot about that sweet spot thing. Um, I don't want people to write something just because they think that will be a bestseller or that will be popular. I want them to write about what needs to come through them. And, uh, and even with some people that I've worked with who are not big authors, who were self-publishing and, and, and they, uh, they, there weren't going to be a lot of people that were going to read this book. I would say to them, the important thing is if you really feel like you have this message to share, the important thing is that you share it. And after you do that, it's none of your business. So you can write this book and have it self-published and you may never know what effect that has on people's lives. That may end up on a remainder table somewhere and someone could pick it up, you know, even 10 years from now. And it's exactly the message they need to hear right then. And it changes their life. And you know what? That's enough. You've done your job. Your job isn't to be famous and to be on Oprah and to be on the New York Times bestseller list and have everyone know who you are. I mean, it's okay if you do those things, but that's not necessarily the point. And people put so much pressure on themselves because it's just so easy to do that, especially in this culture. So I try to get them not to do that and not to think in terms of that, but just to think in terms of what wants to come through. So I even will tell them, you don't have to start at the beginning. You can start at the middle. You have to really follow the juice. So whatever it is that you're excited about, I mean, you know what that is, that's energy. So whatever you're excited about, whatever's floating your boat, concentrate on that because then that's going to shine. The rest of it, you can figure out and move around or rewrite later. But, uh, but I work with people in a very different way than a lot of other editors do. And, uh, and, and you either like that and people either love that or they're not interested, but the people who are not interested have not called me yet. So <laughs> well, exactly the right people show up, you know, when you need them to show up. And I know, I know I have so many people say to me, to your point, I feel like I'm talking to you over a cup of coffee. I feel like it's you talking to me in a conversational style with angelic attendance, number one. And the other thing that I've gotten a lot, and I credit this to you and the way you structured the book was, Uh, The thing that I hear a lot is I didn't expect it to be a page turner. (laughs) And I have heard from so many people, Katie, who say, I just didn't want to put it down. And I didn't expect 
a book on spirituality and especially about what happens when somebody's dying, I didn't expect that to be that way. I expected it to be more serious and more um, maudlin, I guess is the word that I'm looking for. And, and I think you did a great job of structuring it so that it flowed really well and that people had the feeling of, I didn't want to put it down. When it, this one woman told me she lives in Florida and she, she said it was during football season when she was reading Angelic Attendance. Oh, no. And she said she was in the living room and she has three sons and her husband and they were all watching some football game. It was a Sunday afternoon. And she said, she kept saying out loud, Oh my God. And you are kidding me. And I can't believe this. This is amazing. And she kept screaming out this stuff. And her, her men in the other room were saying, what are you doing? What, why do you keep saying that? And what it was, was she was reading the stories, you know, and reading about what happened as, as in the stories about as a loved one was dying and we, and I was working with the family, but she, I just thought that was so cute that she talked about that. And to your point about, we just don't know who's going to read it. As you know, it took me a long time to have the courage to release that book because I'm a businesswoman. I thought people are going to think I'm nuts. They're going to think I have lost my ever loving, you know, last brain cell with doing (laughs) this, but it's now being used across the country in Sunday school classes, in churches of all denominations, even in synagogues. I didn't see that coming. And it's given as a gift to people who have a loved one who's dying, which is what I intended. Or, and it's also given as a gift to, to people who've just lost a loved one. And it brings so much comfort. And, and so you just don't know where it's going to show up, mm-hmm. this information. But I was led, like mm-hmm. a good Southern girl, I was led to, to release this. And you were so terrific about how to structure it and, you know, put it all together and make it flow and, and make it sense, make it make sense. And of course, there is the grammar part of the equation. And I know what a, what a stickler you are for that, for sentence structure and punctuation and grammar. And it was pretty good, but you had a few tweaks that you added to the equation, which is what you're supposed to be doing. So if, if somebody is listening to this or watching this and they're thinking about, gosh, I'm, you know, I'd like to write a book, but I don't even know where to start. Do you have any advice for them of, of yeah. where they can where they can begin or what they can do. I know the industry has changed so much, and and um, we've we've only got a couple minutes left. But I think it's important for people to hear. Okay, if you're thinking about writing a book, here's a place for you to start. I think one of the best places places to start is to blog because it gets oh. you right. Oh, and then you just get it out there, and people can respond to you. You see how it goes over. You see how it feels. You see where it wants to go. You can respond to things that are happening right now. And, uh, and, and those blog posts may end up being chapters or, or not, but it gets, it, it gets the juices going. It gets you into it. So does somebody have to put up their own website or are there places they can go to blog about different topics? Well, there are a lot of places where you can blog. Um, right, like Medium is a place where you can do your own stuff. Um, Medium, yeah. I, I don't know about the Huffington Post anymore, but um, or, or you can do your own website, which is very easy to do and, yeah. and do it. And um, expensive and, these days too. Yeah, and yeah. and if you really wanted to get out there, you've got to market it. But if you're just interested in the writing and and, and getting it out, even if it's just your friends and family who read it, 
But the most important thing in writing is just to write and, and not to get paralyzed thinking like, oh, I don't know where to start. Or I don't know what to talk about or, you know, it's, it's just to just to get it going. I found, too, that I was initially I kept wanting to go back and edit every sentence or two. Yeah. And you said to me, just write, let it flow. That's why you've hired me. Yep. You know, give me what comes out of you and then I'll put it together and make it look pretty. Yeah, and I, that, was, that was a huge piece of advice. You know, because I was going back, okay, I can see this better. And, I'm, and you go, no, that's what I do. <laughs> Grammar and punctuation for, for a writer is a distraction. Yeah. Right? Like you can always go back and, and even if you don't have an editor, you can always go back and clean it up. The important thing is, is to, to get out what wants to come out. Yeah, that's great advice. So how do people learn more about you? Where can people find you? I mean, uh, if we have if we have a future New York Times bestseller that needs your help in the woo-woo space, how do they find you? My website is w. Actually, I don't even know if it's www, but it's katiekoons.com. K-A-T-Y-K-O-O-N-T-Z.com. Katie Koons, Katie with a Y. Katie with a Y. Katie with a Y. So thank you for taking the time to come on the show and talking to us. I mean, I, you know, I love and adore you. You, I consider you a very dear friend, but I I adore you as well. Well, thank you. I just wanted the rest of the world to know about you. And I especially wanted people who are thinking about writing to understand, you know, your side of the equation and, and to understand that really there are people like you out there who understand the, the mind, body, spirit space. And if people are interested in being in that, certainly the resources are available to them. So if you, you obviously can't be an editor for everybody, but if you can't, I would imagine that you might have places that people can go where they can find somebody who can help them. You have yes, maybe I can, some I can resources. To yeah. people. And I also just do, you know, readings and you know, I read what people uh, write and do consultations too, even if I'm not going to do a full edit of a book. So there's right. all kinds of help available. Yeah. So katiekoons.com, you guys. She's the queen. <laughs> all right, my girl. I love you. Love Thanks you so much. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to follow Julie on Instagram and YouTube at Ask Julie Ryan. And like her on Facebook at Ask Julie Ryan. To schedule an appointment or submit a question, please visit AskJulieRyan.com. This show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical, psychological, financial, or legal advice. Please contact a licensed professional. The Ask Julie Ryan Show, Julie Ryan and all parties involved in producing, recording, and distributing it assume no responsibility for listeners' actions based on any information heard on this or any Ask Julie Ryan shows or podcasts.